Section 17 of Tom Petrie's Reminiscences of Early Queensland. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Tom Petrie's Reminiscences of Early Queensland. Part 1. Chapter 17. I have spoken of the way in which different aboriginal tribes were related one to the other by marriage. When a man had a wife given him from a neighboring tribe, he stayed with that tribe for some time, hunting with them, etc., as though he were one of themselves, before he took his wife to his own people. When he did take her to his own tribe, he introduced her to his friends, and if his mother or sisters were alive, they would look after and be very kind to her. Subsequently his friends invited some of her friends to live and hunt with them for a while. This sort of thing was done from tribe to tribe. My father has known them all connected in that way, the Ipswich and Brisbane, the Brisbane and the Pine, the Pine and the Bribey Island, and the Bribey Island, and the Maroochee Blacks, etc. Often in this way Aborigines would stay for some time with tribes other than their own, just as white people travelled to visit their friends. So it was that father encountered some of the very old blackfellows of early times, hailing from different parts, and he had long yarns with them on various subjects. Once at a bonny feast in the Blackall, he came across two or three men who belonged to the tribe the white man, Durham boy, had lived with those fourteen or fifteen years. These men said, they were very sorry when Durham boy left them. They cried a lot, for they missed him very much. They all looked up to him. He was a great man to hunt for game, was always lucky in spearing kangaroo, and was a good hand at spear and boomerang throwing. He could also climb splendidly, using a vine as they did, and was so smart in capturing possums or honey. Then he was a great fighter. When father was a boy of about eleven years old, he was sitting one day on his father's veranda, on the bite, listening to several squatters who were yarning there. Presently one of these latter jumped up in excitement, calling, "'Here comes Petrie and his crew!' And sure enough, a boat was in sight coming around Kangaroo Point. Off the squatters all ran down to the river bank, followed by the boy, and they went to the spot where the steamers now leave for Humpybong, there was no wharf then, of course. This was the arrival of Andrew Petrie from his trip to Wide Bay in 1842, when he brought back with him Davis, Durham boy, and Bracefield, Wandy. When the boat got in close to shore, Durham boy, who was in the bow, took hold of the boat hook to fend her off and to hold her steady while the others got ashore. A little thing made an impression on the boy's mind. As Durham boy stood there, he licked the palm of his hand so that the boat hook would not slip, in exactly the same way as the natives licked their hands preparatory to throwing a wadi or boomerang. That same night of the landing, some of the squatters got Durham boy and Wandy to sing Aboriginal songs and tell them about the blacks. The two men sat down tailor fashion, as the natives do and one had a couple of waddies and the other had boomerangs, and with these they beat time to their songs. The squatters kept them going for nearly half the night. "'That would have been the time,' says my father, 
if someone had taken Davies in hand to write the history of his life among the blacks, it would have been got easily from him then, before he got back into white ways. Afterwards he and Wandy would say nothing about their former life. It was a great pity someone did not do it, for such would have been worth reading. However, in those days men were more for fun and devilment than for writing people's lives. To show you how stubborn Davies was later on, I said to him some time after his return, Davies, you ought to get someone to write your life among the blacks. You could make a lot of money. I don't want to make a lot of money. I got enough now to keep me. If anyone wants to know about the blacks, let them go and live with them as I did. I'll tell you a thing that happened the other day. A swell who lives in this town brought another swell with him to me and said, Mr. Davies, allow me to introduce Mr. So-and-so to you from Sydney. He has come all the way to see you and to get some information about the blacks. Do you know what I said to him? I said, Do you see that door there? Well, the sooner you get out of my shop, the better. And if you want any information about the blacks, take your clothes off and go and live with them as I did. And off they went, with their tails between their legs, and I saw nothing more of them. No one will get anything from me about the blacks. This was quite true, according to my father, and you might just as well have tried to pump the river dry as get anything from Davies in those days. He would never allow anyone to take his photo. There were no snapshots then, and I am informed that the well-known printing of him by Mr. Oscar Freestrom of Brisbane was painted not without a great deal of trouble after the man had died. I am indebted to that artist for my illustration, and to him belongs the honour of bringing into existence the original from which all others have been taken. Durham Boy was a blacksmith by trade, and after Mr. Andrew Petrie had brought him back with Wandy, the pair were not put with the other prisoners, but each got a ticket to leave. Therefore they were free to work for others, or for themselves, as long as they did not leave the country. Wandy was signed over to Dr. Simpson at Guna, called Red Bank in those days, and he was killed some time afterwards through a limb of a tree falling on him. Davies was started with a blacksmith's shop at Kangaroo Point, and he got on well and made money. After some time he got married, and later bought a piece of ground on the north side in George Street, next to Gray's boot shop, and there he put up a blacksmith's shop and started afresh. He prospered and made a lot of money, so bought property in Burnett Lane, where he and his wife went to live. After this he built a small brick store alongside his smithy, and went in for selling crockery, giving up the other business. So things went on till Mrs. Davis took ill and died. The old man lived in single blessedness for some time. Then, as is the way of man, although his married life had not been smooth, he longed to be married again, with the result that he wedded a widow with one daughter, and this wife outlived him. I have already spoken of the ornamental marks Davies had on his body. He had also spear and other marks gained through fighting. Tom saw all of these. Davies showed them to him when he was first brought back from the bush. A few months after his return, though, 
father says, I don't think he would have shown his marks even to the king. In the early days, the Reverend W. Ridley came to Brisbane to learn what he could about the Queensland Aborigines, and he sought out my father, who was quite a lad at the time, to get information from him. He seemed very clever, and as fast as the boy could speak the language he was able to write it down. He took a part of the Bible, and read out verse after verse, and the lad followed in the black's tongue. Afterwards, reading out the aboriginal version for his young companion's approval, it was almost as though a blackfellow spoke. This was after the return of Davis to civilization, and Mr. Ridley wished an interview with this man of unusual experience, and asked father to manage it for him. He was about to journey to the Dawson River to see the blacks there, and wanted some word of the language that Davis knew. So father went to Durham Boy and asked him to come to Mr. Ridley, but the man flatly refused, saying, If he wants to know about the blacks, let him take his clothes off and go among them and live with them, as I did. Father tried to coax and get around him, but he would not move. However, nothing daunted, the young fellow went again next day, and at last Durham Boy gave in, and said he would go as your father and mother were so kind to me, but he, meaning Mr. Ridley, will do no good with the blacks. So the pair of them went to the reverend gentleman, and the latter started to read a verse of the Bible to Davies, who, however, would not follow, but said he would give names of animals and things like that, which he did, Mr. Ridley taking them down. On Mr. Ridley's return from his trip, he told father that nearly all the blacks he came across understood what he, father, had told him, but on the contrary he only met two who understood the words from Davies. This was because he had gone too far inland, for of course Davies thoroughly knew the language and all else about the tribe he had lived with. At this time there was very little communication between Sydney and Morton Bay, as Brisbane was then called. Only about once a month or two a vessel would arrive with stores for the settlement. Some few days after Mr. Ridley's return from the Dawson, and on the night before, a boat was to leave for Sydney. That gentleman, accompanied by a reverend Mr. Houseman, turned up at my grandfather's house at about eight o'clock, with the object of getting father to go with them out to a black's camp. Mr. Ridley said he had heard there was a great gathering of natives at Bayuba, or, as the whites called it, Three Mile Scrub, now known as Anogera Crossing, and as he was obliged to leave for Sydney next morning, he would like to talk to the blacks that night. Father said it was too late to look up a horse to accompany them, they both had horses, and his father, Andrew Petrie, thought so too. However, Mr. Ridley in the end persuaded the Scotchman to allow his son to go. He is a young lad, and it is only three miles to walk. It won't hurt him, he said. So off they went, the boy tramping alongside as they rode. When the scrub on the creek at the crossing was reached, it was very dark, and they could see nothing, though the blacks were heard talking in the distance. The road ran through the scrub, and when the two riders got about halfway through they dismounted, and the boy thought to himself, 
At last they're going to give me a spell on horseback. But no, down on their knees they went, and he watched them as they prayed. When they had finished, they warned the boy not to call out, as that would frighten the blacks and make them run away, but Tom thought he knew one better, and said the best way would be for him to cooey, as they would know who it was then. Otherwise none would remain to be interviewed. They would all make off, thinking someone was after them. His companions agreed to this, and they both mounted again. It tickles one's sense of humour to imagine the feeling of half-amusement and disgust with which the boys saw them do this. No doubt his young legs had not been idle all day, and he would like to have rested them. Boys, I am sure, often think their elders do not consider their feelings sufficiently, though this boy did not complain of the incident. Still, they have feelings, of course, and one would not lose by remembering it. Rather the opposite, for a right-minded boy would never take advantage of kindly consideration. Most likely Tom would have refused it if he had been asked to ride more than just a little way. However, no doubt, Mr. Ridley's mind was much preoccupied, and he did not, of course, think of such a thing as a youngster's tired legs. When this party of three had got through to the other side of the scrub, Father cooeyed. At that time he could cooey as well as any black fellow, and the natives knew his call and answered, and some of them came forward to meet their visitors. Arriving at the camp, the boy told them what his white friends had come for, and they all clustered round, men and women, and squatting down, prepared to listen. Mr. Ridley brought out his notebook, and, opening it, proceeded to read out something of what father had previously given him. Then he talked to them for about half an hour, and sang a hymn he had made from the aboriginal words. During all this the blacks looked at one another, and the knowing ones pointed at the white boy, and made signs as though to say, we know who told him all this. At length they began to tire, being kept at it too long, and one by one got up and walked away, till at last almost all had gone off to their different huts. So the white men bade them good-night, and returned to Brisbane, and the boy was not sorry when the end of his walk came, as it was late. I was glad to get to my bed, he tells me. Next day some of the young black fellows turned up at the Petri's home, and they said to father they knew who had told that man all his rubbish, and picking up a piece of paper started mimicking Mr. Ridley. Then they asked, where that fellow stop? Oh, he has gone away, in a big ship to Sydney. When he come back? And so on. That night at Anogera there were some two hundred blacks in camp and Mr. Ridley and Mr. Hausman seemed pleased they had seen so many altogether, and were able to speak to them. Another gentleman, long since dead, whom my father remembers meeting when a boy, was the explorer Leichhardt. He also visited my grandfather Petrie, and got Tom one day to accompany him through the bush and help collect plants and seeds. Here I may mention an incident already spoken of by Mr. Knight in his work in the early days. In 1849, when my father was a boy of about seventeen, a man named Humby was brick-making in York's Hollow, 
just about where the show-ring of the exhibition now is. One night, between ten and eleven o'clock, this man came to the Petri's house in a great state of fear, and said that a black boy employed by grandfather had told him that the blacks had run a bullock into the swamp at a place the natives called Barambin, where Mr. P. M. Campbell's house now stands, and that they had hamstrung it, and intended to roast and eat it. Father's eldest brother, John, who was a young man then, some dozen years older than Tom, came and woke him up and told him Humby's story. Father said he didn't believe a word of it. The blacks wouldn't touch anything belonging to the Petris. Never mind, said John. You must come and see if it is the case. Humby has gone to inform the police, and we must get out there before they arrive. So they went off, accompanied by two men in grandfather's employment, John Bryden and William Ballantine, and reaching the camp at Bowen Hills, father, who was the only one who could speak the native's tongue, told the blacks the story of the bullock. They said it was all lies, that the black boy had invented the story out of revenge because an old gin had beaten him. Finding the boy who turned out to be one of his playmates called Wamgul, father asked whatever made him tell such a story. The boy owned to his fault, saying that the djinn had beaten him so soundly that he declared he would go and tell Humby, the brickmaker, a story about a bullock being killed, and then she would get punished along with the rest. Hearing that this was how it stood, John Petrie asked his young brother to get two natives to accompany them to the swamp that the bullock was supposed to have been driven into, but hardly had they got down the hill on the way there when bang, bang! sounded behind them at the camp they had just quitted. Turning, they all started to run back again up the hill, meeting as they ran the poor darkies rushing frantically pell-mell down to jump into the creek, bullets whistling overhead. John Petrie called out, Stop firing! And then he sought Lieutenant Cameron, who was in charge, and explained to him that it was all stories about the bullock. So the lieutenant called his men together and gave the order, right about face march quick and off they went to brisbane it seems that when humby went for the police chief constable fitzpatrick was in bed and did not think it worth while getting up so he got a man under him to tell dr ballow a magistrate about the affair the latter in his turn was not sure how he should act so he asked lieutenant cameron of the military to take over the lieutenant divided his men into two and it was the half who were not under his immediate supervision who so thoughtlessly and cruelly fired on the blacks. The next day Grandfather sent his son out to the camp to see if anything serious had happened. On the way the boy met a number of natives coming in, three of them wounded. One had been shot on the thigh, another on the arm, and the third had a flesh wound on his forehead where a ball had grazed. They all said to Father, what for the diamonds, soldiers? Shoot us. We did nothing. Their friend explained how it had all happened, and they were quite satisfied and told him to go to camp, and he would find Wamgul lying there wounded, unable to rise. And also if he went to the swamp he would see for himself that no bullock had been there. Tom went and found Wamgul in great pain, and then going to the swamp he saw that the natives were quite correct. So when he got home again, 
he told his father and his brother john of the wounded men and the boy and that there were no traces of the bullock Womgol was then brought into the hospital and it was not very long before he recovered about three years afterwards this boy joined the black police and was sent up country he remained in the force till his death an inquiry was held on this affair and father was sent for to interpret for the blacks only two soldiers were found guilty as bullets were missing from their pouches while the others had theirs full these two were sentenced to six months imprisonment and chief constable fitzpatrick lost his billet through appreciating his bed somewhat too highly end of part one chapter seventeen